Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Elise Springer. Her new book is titled Communicating Moral Concern and Ethics of Critical Responsiveness. It is published with MIT Press. Springer is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Wesleyan University. The long tradition of moral philosophy employs a familiar collection of basic concepts. These concepts include agent, act, intention, consequence, responsibility, obligation, the right, and the good. Typically, contemporary moral theorists simply inherit these conceptual materials and they use them to stake their positions within the terrain the concepts establish. But we must recognize the possibility that the categories and distinctions that form moral philosophy's bedrock can nonetheless obscure or distract attention away from salient moral phenomena. Sometimes one needs to fashion new conceptual tools and refashion the old ones in order to get a handle on things. In Communicating Moral Concern, Elise Springer identifies a sphere of moral phenomena that she claims are as yet under-theorized. These phenomena have to do with the activities associated with certain forms of moral criticism that target not simply what another has brought about, nor simply the intentions and attitudes another has expressed by means of action, but also a concern with how another has employed her agency. Springer argues that in order to properly theorize the activities associated with calling attention to the agency of others, moral philosophers need to adopt a collection of new concepts. Communicating moral concern is a systematic and exciting reorientation of moral theory. So let's turn to the interview. Hello, Elise Springer. Hello, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm fine. It's a gorgeous day in Connecticut. Oh, that's nice. It's a pretty nice day here in Nashville, too. Thanks for joining me today on New Books and Philosophy. Thanks for having me. And thank you, listener, for tuning in to the podcast. Our topic today is Elise's new book, which is titled Communicating Moral Concern and Ethics of Critical Engagement. This is, I should say, uh, from the start, a highly original and very ambitious book, which makes it very refreshing. Um, and it at least proposes a uh, what seems to me a fairly radical uh, reorientation of sort of fundamental concepts and ideas in moral philosophy. Um, and the nub of the book is to the, the idea that we need to place at the center of our moral theorizing uh, the concept of uh, moral concern and a corresponding uh, conception of moral gesture and moral critique. Um, 
and there's a lot to talk about in the book, and uh, the book uh, takes on a lot of uh, contemporary uh, work in moral philosophy and connects up in interesting ways with uh, Peter Strawson's views, with uh, virtue ethics, uh, with some work in sociology and moral psychology. Uh, so we've got a lot to talk about, but first, uh, Elise, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I've always been a New Englander, and I was lucky enough to find myself working relatively close to home at Wesleyan University, um, where I've been for the last 10 years. I was a music major as an undergraduate, so I came pretty late to philosophy, and I really owe my interest in philosophy to a cluster of women faculty, still too rare a thing in philosophy departments, I'm afraid, uh, Mm -hmm. but who invited me into philosophical discussions when I was an undergraduate music major writing a thesis in music and how how music carries meaning. And uh, because of the way that they engaged me in dialogue and drew me out, but also listening to them talk with each other, right? Sometimes our greatest... uh, Inspirations come from watching people who are on the road ahead of us uh, debate and and, uh, um, encounter each other's ideas. But because of that uh, interaction, I came to recognize that many of my own questions and concerns uh, really were philosophical in nature, and I hadn't realized that uh, through my whole uh, undergraduate career. No, continue, please. Well, well, I was interested in ethics from the beginning, that that I'm sure will, will never not be part of my um, philosophical set of interests. But um, I ended up going to grad school without any philosophy under my belt, so that's quite a um, an unusual experience. And uh, there were three further influences that were really important to me in graduate school. I didn't have a single mentor. Uh, for, you know, to whom I really owe my, my direction, but there were, there were a few things that were very important. Um, one was feminist theory. I'd actually been uh, very interested in what was then called women's studies when I was an undergraduate, and I'd always been something of a uh, resistor and nonconformist around norms of sex and gender. So I was interested in feminist theory, and Diana Myers really uh, drew that interest out in graduate school. And the second interest was pragmatism. Uh, that was the one course in graduate school that was like a, a seed that kept growing. Uh, actually, there were a couple of courses like that. But the pragmatism course uh, really stayed with me and has continued to be tremendously influential, as you will see in the book. Um, partly because pragmatism was so resourceful in bringing attention back um, or integrating abstract reflection with problems as they're lived through and encountered um, in the social and and political arena. And the the third major influence in graduate school was studying with Ruth Millikan. She has a teleosemantic account of meaning, uh, which which I haven't really followed, uh, followed up on in any technical way, but it really convinced me to emphasize the continuity between articulate human claims of the kind that you see in moral debate uh, and other organic patterns of significance um, to see to see human life as as emergent and uh, without being uh, reductive that is without saying well it's it's really clear that morality is all about biological imperatives or something. I think she really inspired me uh, to think in a naturalistic way that was still uh, full of creativity and uh, recognition of complexity. 
Well, that's great. Um, so why don't we turn to the book then? Um, and uh, as I said just a moment ago, this is a, a really original book, um, and um, it proposes a, a whole new orientation for, for moral theory. So um, maybe that gives us an especially good reason uh, to start with uh, a couple of the methodological uh, or maybe even metaphilosophical issues uh, that get addressed in the book. Um, I want to quote uh, from the very last page of the book, which I think um, – uh, where you have a sentence that's very, very interesting and might be a good sort of um, place to begin or to just prompt you to talk about some of the broader methodological stuff. Um, you say on the last page of the book that, that the whole book has, I'm quoting here, has primarily been an argument against the very notion of garden variety conduct with which most moral philosophy seems to begin. And one of the themes that runs through the book uh, in various methodological discussions is that um, uh, when we start doing moral philosophy in uh, a traditional way, we've already signed on to a certain kind of program with a certain set of concepts. And I take it that the book is aimed at not displacing those concepts entirely, but reorganizing the ways that we think about agency and intention and uh, 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 activity and the rest. So can you tell us a little bit about that broader sort of picture of moral philosophy as, uh, as you see it and as you'd like to see it change? Mm. In some ways, you might even say that this is a, a suggestion about how philosophers think about action, right? Not just moral philosophers. I'm I'm interested in agency or activity um, in a very broad way, and that that interest continues. Um, and I've been uh, from the time I was doing my dissertation especially interested in moral change or how patterns of activity um, shift over time and how we participate in those changes. And the reason that I'm problematizing conduct uh, in that uh, provocative quote at the end of the book is that I worry that moral philosophy has been preoccupied with an idea that morality is about uh, the the, boiled down to something like codes of conduct. So we've got behavior on the ground, we're running around doing things, and then moral reflection prompts us to make judgments about what's going on on the ground as people interact with each other uh, in their world of conduct. And then I ask a question, or I began to ask a question many years ago, when, when I actually say something to another person, engage their attention uh, with criticism, or when I listen to someone else's criticism for that matter, should I think of that as more conduct on the ground to be evaluated uh, by the same standards that the rest of conduct is evaluated, or is it somehow, uh, uh, does it exist on a plane of judgment that's different from conduct? And there are a number of philosophers who've wrestled with this this question, but they've left it as a sort of a, uh, a dialectic. Um, so should we think of the effects of blame in terms of, say, the, their utilitarian outcomes, or should we think of whether blame is justified? Uh, the more I reflected on uh, thinking of blame in particular as either conduct itself to be judged by a utilitarian or even a deontological standard or a virtue ethic standard, right, either as conduct or as justified or not as representation. The more I reflected mm -hmm. on, on that, the more I realized that 
something had gotten lost, which was something about the how of our critical interventions. And certainly in my interactions with others, I was most drawn to uh, to respect those who had some some wisdom in how they engaged others' attention when they engaged in criticism. And that's a different question from whether they're justified or whether the, uh, whether the effects come out well in some kind of uh, ultimate cashing out of consequences. And so uh, that idea of gesture uh, or of intervention as something that's happening in real time and that has a how to it um, and it's fundamentally social uh, helps to intervene between the idea of a representation that's timeless and either justified or not, or conduct, which is very much in time but strictly belonging to an individual in the way it's usually conceived. Right, and one of the diagnoses that uh, that you uh, propose uh, of the sort of um, some traditional tracks in moral theory is uh, you claim that it's morally solipsistic. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the the solipsism that you see in some of uh, traditional moral theory? Yeah, I I found it very difficult. Um, when trying to adopt some of the systematic moral frameworks that we celebrate in canonical moral theory, I found it very difficult to recognize the encounter of multiple moral agents in a way that exhibits moral agency. So let me let me step back and show that this has a variation in both of the celebrated moral theories um, that are most familiar, uh, modern moral theories. So in um, Consequentialist moral theory, there's certainly a, a high emphasis placed on intervening in uh, the world of human affairs. Uh, if you can intervene and, and make a positive difference in, in the outcome for people and the um, balance of well-being over suffering, then you should. So it would seem that critical interventions are, uh, are recommended. But... There's a sense in which, from a consequentialist point of view, it's hard to say what it is to engage with another's agency, because it seems like if you could just dictate everybody else's behavior and have perfect knowledge, that would be better, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you could uh, sort of turn yourself into a puppeteer uh, to make things come out right, um, that would be uh, that would be sort of a paragon instance of. Um, of consequentialist agency, what would it be for a consequentialist to take an interlocutor as a fellow agent seriously? Now, I don't think that actual consequentialists failed to do this. Mill, for example, Sidgwick, especially Mill, was really interested sure. in dialogue. Right. But I don't think that consequentialist theory, especially when it gets spelled out in a systematic way, lends itself to that. And in fact, Sidgwick himself ended up sort of admitting that there are these uh, communicative gaps that come up when you, when you distrust the effects of your, uh, of your communication with an audience. Uh, places where you, should, you, know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, praise things that are in fact praiseworthy by his own right. lights because the praise would be misunderstood, etc., so I was really interested in, in how consequentialists, uh, what it means to, to take another's agency seriously and how consequentialism seems to struggle with that. Now, 
certainly most deontological theorists will be shocked to say to, to hear uh, some questioning of uh, whether they are able to take the encounter of multiple moral agents seriously because all of the talk of respect and dignity and autonomy and uh, regard for another's moral agency is there in, uh, in Kant and in other deontological thinkers. But there's a sense in which uh, that very focus on autonomy and respect kind of unhooks us from engagement in a certain way where uh, deontological theory tends to suggest that uh, what you ought to do as a critic is much more about expressing your rightly justified state of mind and has no follow through in the, in the sense of being responsible for making sure something comes across, uh, being, being responsible for uptake as it were. Um, what consequentialists would say are effects, but I want to stop short of saying we're responsible for the ultimate effects of our criticism or that that's the real moral criterion. But we are always um, in critical practice, uh, uh, certainly it behooves us to pay attention to questions of uptake and interpretation. And I, I don't see in deontological theory what it means to take the effect of one's communication uh, into account. Because in some sense, um, the kinds of agents Kant imagines don't really affect each other. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, so that's the way in which I see Kantian agents as kind of insulated from moral contact with one another. They're each in their sort of own bubbles, noumenal bubbles of, <laughs> of, of will and principle. And I see consequentialist agents as not just contacting each other, but sort of uh, easily bulldozing or puppeteering each other by the lights of you know, what their theory would recommend, right? right? Without saying that that's what the actual agents are doing. Well, great. So uh, before, so you've already spelled out some of the beginnings of uh, the, the this sort of um, the prescription given the diagnosis. Uh, but before we, uh, I ask you directly about this this third uh, uh, set of concepts. Um, I do want to ask one further methodological question, which is about um, uh, something you you mentioned in uh, a moment ago about your own philosophical. Uh, 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 path, um, which is about pragmatism. So um, there are multiple parts, of, you know, moments in the book where um, uh, the pragmatism of uh, John Dewey or uh, G. H. Mead uh, is brought up. Um, but um, earlier in the book, um, the the pragmatist that gets uh, d discussed is. is is one that might be most surprising to people yes. who know about these characters. Um, so it's th th there's a Persian strand uh, mm -hmm. to your moral theorizing. Now, let me just say for listeners who who might not know this, um, uh, Peirce was a very peculiar personality in all kinds of respects uh, and a, a very ambitious, systematic thinker who um, had a very uneasy connection to ethics, uh, both as an individual and as a theorist. Um, and so uh, he was constantly um, 
writing tables of contents for a mammoth philosophical work that was going to spell out his entire system. And in a lot of drafts of that table of contents, there's no or very little discussion of anything normative. Um, but um, that's not to say that there isn't uh, some real resources uh, uh, in Peirce's views. Um, and so could you tell us a little bit about your interest in pragmatism, how you see pragmatism in general connecting up with this project? And also uh, the sort of Persian uh, uh, appeal to the the, the, the Persian, you know, the, the, the three categories, uh, the, the firstness, secondness, and thirdness stuff, because I found that right. really intriguing. Right. Well, I wouldn't say that Peirce wasn't concerned with normativity, but he, he really was nothing like the publicly engaged intellectual, and certainly not the progressive that Dewey <laughs> and uh, James and, and Mead uh, and yeah, Adams, you know, all of these, right. uh, all of their um, classical pragmatists all of these other classical pragmatists are known for being very publicly engaged, and Peirce was not, um, right. no doubt. Um, uh, Cheryl Mizak makes a nice, uh, you know, nice uh, acknowledgement of that fact. But uh, it, her own work on Peirce, I, I think, I, I recommend as one that, that draws out some of the implications of his work that he himself uh, may not see. I'm not a Peirce scholar, and so mm-hmm. I certainly, I'm. I'm not at pains to argue that what I draw from Peirce is uh, the best or true Peirce, but what I found in Peirce was a tool to break down the oppositional pattern of thought that I found so pervasive in philosophy between, say, in moral philosophy, the good and the right, right? And the way that those two poles just seem to be in a tug of war with each other and views seem to end up uh, shimmying in one direction or the other because of their, the, the pull of the neatness of categories such as the good and the right. And uh, what what Peirce did in his work on categories was to instill a habit of thought in me of looking for the third, <laughs> and and here's how I find it, and, and he doesn't quite articulate it this way, uh, but that if you if you think about what consequentialists care about when they care about the good, uh, it turns out to be something in the end like the quality of experience. Now, quality is the first of Peirce's three uh, categories. And if you think about um, the, the right, you end up uh, focusing on uh, something like uh, the truth, the justifiability, or the, the ultimate sort of um, big picture represent, representational quality um, mm-hmm. of um, of judgments, and uh, representation is one of Peirce's iconic um, concepts for thirdness. Okay, what Peirce does with the idea of secondness, which is so crucial on, in the book, is to say we need to recognize that there are qualities of and norms pertaining to and uh, important reflection to be had about encounters as such. So encounters aren't states like emotional states. They're not within an individual. They're not not qualia-like in any way. (laughs) Um, But they're also just not judgments. An encounter is is not something um, to express in a sentence. As soon as you put it in a sentence, you've you've done something different from drawing attention to the encounter. 
And my suggestion throughout the book is that a moral encounter can have, uh, I use the word aptness, it can be uh, aptly carried out or can go well in a way that doesn't reduce down to good consequences afterwards or to its having exhibited uh, a right judgment or right principle. Um, and so throughout the book, when I think about moral change and criticism, I ask, when we encounter one another, what counts as orienting to that encounter well? So that's, uh, that's one way of looking at the Persian bit. And then throughout the book, every time there's a dichotomy, I find myself really grateful to Perse for giving me the discipline of thought to not just to say we need a, uh, what's it called, uh, like a, Compromise, you know, mm-hmm. we didn't need not just a blending of these two extremes, like between rationalism and uh, rationalism and empiricism, or between expressive and regulative accounts of moral response, uh, but but a qualitatively different direction in which to recognize something else going on. Right, excellent, and that is a um, that's a if if there is a standard trope in pragmatist thinking, um, you know they are a pretty motley group uh, <laughs> philosophically. I mean, it really is that that attention to um, uh, the tendency for sort of conceptual dualisms to be false dualisms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a very, uh, very interesting uh, aspect of the book. Um, but let's, let's take up now the, the sort of uh, what we might say is sort of the central plank of, of, of the positive uh, uh, proposal. Um, now I take it uh, that the main aim of, of communicating moral concern of the book is, is to, is to bring into uh, our moral theorizing um, the idea that as moral creatures, um, we we have to be concerned um, with each other's moral agency in a way that's not just, as you were saying before, not just an interest in regulating what they bring about in the world, and n- nor is it uh, an interest simply in w- what um, actions express and how we express ourselves uh, uh, in reaction to what those actions are expressed, what intentions are, are being expressed there. Um, but the, the idea of, 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 of being responsive or uh, of, of critical responsiveness, as you call it, is um, uh, the, the activity of showing concern with how others exercise, or we might say enact their agency, their status as it, as it were, as agent. Um, and this is an intriguing thought that ever since I, I finished the book and actually went back and, and reread certain sections a, a couple of times, it's, it's, it's a, it's a really intriguing thought. Can, can you spell it out a little bit? Um, sure. And correct me if I haven't gotten it just well, right. And, too, and, and here's a place where even I am constantly learning how my language has been, uh, shaped by these dualisms. So um, I'll take the expression showing concern that was part of your paraphrase and say that the showing is borrowed from the expressivist body of concepts. Right? Right. So good critical, critical practice, on my view, is something more than showing concern. It's actually getting concern across. It's actually engaging somebody's attention with a concern. So concern is is not uh, a sort of a, an emotional state that I exude or kind of broadcast, uh, but is a 
a pattern of noticing a problem. So uh, problem is also a word that the pragmatists have, especially Dewey, um, have reflected upon very helpfully. Sure. Right. So when I when I engage somebody's attention with a concern, I draw their attention to the same problem that I'm paying attention to. And this is very, it's very important to me to find language to talk about a critical encounter or initiative that doesn't depend upon my having in advance a verdict, even a tentative verdict. This is what I'm really doing is trying to persuade you that what you did was wrong. Right, uh, or or that what I'm really trying to do is to get you to behave differently. I guess I'm uh, I find myself quite often in an agnostic position in in moral disputes, or a position of not being convinced that that we found the right terms to talk about a problem, and. And I wanted a way to think about what we do when we say, wait a minute, something's going on here. Where the something going on here isn't just a, a tactful way of saying somebody's done the wrong thing and I'm about to <laughs> explain why. So uh, communicating concern is, is sort of getting uh, another person into uh, relationship to the things that are uh, that are provocative, the things that merit concern, but I'm open about how to describe that concern, and I'm enlisting somebody else's attention in sort of coming to terms with it, right? There's a nice expression, coming to terms with it, uh, right. that is making the concern uh, meaningful from their point of view. What are they going to go on and do with it? It can't be the same as what I would go on and do with it if we're actually different agents, and that's a... a a kind of point that theorists of democracy like Dewey uh, were, were at pains to emphasize. We, we can't just try to persuade one another in a democracy. Um, we're actually looking for that collaborative mutual engagement on something that we have uh, diverse perspectives on. Right. So, and I, and I take it that this is um, very centrally connected to uh, this other uh, or, or resulting sort of uh, uh, track in the book, um, where if if the idea is um, to spell out this taking up uh, of moral concern, or as you say, communicating uh, moral concern, then it, the the, the, the 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 moral um, item that we're supposed to theorize then isn't the directive, isn't going to be a regulative principle, isn't going to be something like a reason. <laughs> um, it's something else that you call a gesture. Um, can you tell us about that part of the of, of the of the account? Mm. Well, I'll make first an ecumenical kind of gesture here. Uh, sure. <laughs> and say that in some ways, whatever it is that we're calling reasons. Um, reasons towards moral judgments, etc., are part of what we can be communicating when we communicate moral concern. So it's not the case that you leave all your all your judgments and and uh, tentative judgments at home uh, when you engage in in critical interaction if you're going to do it right. But uh, I want to bring them into a wider category that includes everything that I would call uh, a concern, where a concern is something, uh, well, we talked a little bit about it already, uh, a concern is a, a pattern of attention to a problem. Um, that I want to share that attention and work on it together or um, uh, sort of hand to you, um, ask you to take up a problem in a certain way. Um, so uh, a, 
how we do it um, is by means of gesture. How we communicate concern is by means of gesture. And by saying that, I don't mean to say we never do it by means of uh, outright articulate claims, uh, judgments, standing up and saying, um, I, I think you're wrong. <laughs> um, right. That is... Uh, that falls within the domain of gesture. Gesture includes all kinds of vocalizations, but it also includes not just the articulate ones, but the the kinds of um, intonations and the kinds of fumbling for words that are so often a part of real hard moral conversations. And we tend to think, well, they're they're just trying to figure out what to say. On some level, they are, but it's actually part of the process when we... Mm show our grappling with inarticulacy and that all unfolds in time and in social space we're showing um, that we're paying attention to the other's feedback continually as we're having this dialogue we're wrestling for the right words we're adjusting our claim in response to uh, some protest or simply some uh, something we recognize in, um, in another person's response to our ideas so uh, a gesture is a wider concept than um, something like uh, advancing a claim, which then, in a sort of a Robert Brandom-esque way, you know, you're going to enter into this giving and taking, uh, giving and asking for reasons. Um, there's a lot more going on in the in the interplay of gestures than that. Right, and it's not uh, just to pick up on the contrast with Brandom. It's not a scorekeeping kind of enterprise mm. either. I take mm. it right. It's a, um, I don't know. It, again. It, mm-hmm. What's, and one of the interesting things about the book is, is exactly, I mean, maybe all projects of this kind where you're trying to chart new territory, um, it's a kind of, uh, I guess the word communicating, um, not in the sense of delivering just a message, but making, uh, making common something that um, hadn't been recognized as such. Is that? Right, right. I, I really like, I chose the word communication because it actually has th- these roots in rather physical processes. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't think moral criticism is like disease, but, we, you know, we have this idea right. of, of the movement of substances or of patterns as counting as communication. Um, and, and that's the kind of, um, the way in which communication works differently from something like expression um, as, as a, a metaphor for um, something that, that enables uh, the social movement or the social uh, transfer of uh, an idea or a consideration or uh, a worry um, from one person to another. Right. So let me then just ask one of the um, one of the features of the book uh, is you you're because the book is not a a sort of slash and burn everything that came before and start anew, but an attempt, as we say, uh, we're saying earlier to reorient things. Um, one of the uh, one of the one of the the, the the moves that keeps recurring in the book is positioning the new um, relative to something more familiar as a way of refiguring the familiar so that it's more like, uh, or, or it's, 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 it's the bridge between, uh, uh, the old and, uh, and what you're proposing. So w- one of the figures that, um, is regularly re- re- sort of, uh, coming up for, for discussion and comparison and in a way a reinterpretation, uh, is Peter Strawson. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might help, uh, uh, our listeners, um, 
in, in, in helping to sort of think through uh, this concept of critical responsiveness and the idea of communicating a concern uh, uh, to pick up on some of the ways in which you contrast this view with um, a familiar uh, set of tropes in moral theory, um, which mm-hmm. you see a lot of promise in, but still s- still see the need to refigure, which is the Strawsonian account of um, the reactive attitudes. And then as it gets developed uh, by some of uh, people who are deeply influenced by him, the idea of a moral address and the second personal standpoint and these sorts of things. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how your view picks up from and then reorganizes that stuff uh, and, and turns it into uh, a new con- new conceptual stuff. Yeah. So Strawson, in some ways, is, is already doing a kind of uh, version of what you're talking about. He's responding to determinism debates with a, a, a somewhat pragmatic, Kantian-inflected pragmatic gesture of saying, wait a minute, let's, let's step away from these, these metaphysical debates about free will and instead really focus on, on the kind of practices people are engaged in and the difference it makes to us, what it's like to, um, to be engaged in relationships where things like moral blame and praise are at stake. And so in drawing attention to reactive attitudes, um, to all the ways in which it registers with us viscerally and socially um, when um, responsibility judgments are at stake, in doing that, he's trying to um, reorient a certain kind of philosophical debate um, in, in new but yet in some ways familiar terms, right? right. So... Uh, I follow Strawson in that, and I, I think that the turn towards reactive attitudes is a step in a certain kind of right direction. Um, what happens then, however, is that Strawson's discussion of reactive attitudes does a few things that I think uh, end up further entrenching certain philosophical dichotomies. And in particular, first of all, attitudes are individual. And so we're thinking about um, what it means to experience resentment and when I experience resentment and to some degree when I feel justified in experiencing resentment and expressing resentment uh, or uh, when when guilt is, is called for. Um, and uh, Strawson, in thinking about these attitudes, ends up uh, discussing them separately when as we look at moral interactions from a social point of view, I see things like anger or resentment and guilt as actually forming part of uh, a single social process. Right? There's a dance of anger and guilt that happens and plays out in a social stage. And when you have only one half of that dance, there's a sense in which it's not doing, it's not really doing its thing very well. Um, you know, it's, uh, uh, and of course, that's not to say it doesn't ever happen or that we shouldn't feel anger when there's nobody with whom to address it uh, or that we shouldn't ever feel guilty in the absence of someone remonstrating us. But anger and guilt are, are part of a social process and something about the discussion of reactive attitudes uh, tempts us to, to put them back in the psychological individual bubble. But more importantly, what I worry about in how influential Strassen's article is, um, is it was a great first step, but uh, it ended up being uh, really taken up with cheers uh, in 
in uh, a literature that I, I wish had, had, had really developed it further, and I'm, I hope will develop it further. Specifically, the main pivotal argument in Strassen's uh, uh, Freedom and Resentment is, is a, basically a dichotomous argument. Um, are we going to say that uh, reactive attitudes are justified because of their success in regulating other, others' behaviors? Are we going to say that? Or are we going to say that this is simply something uh, that's integral to our um, demonstrating and exhibiting and participating in moral life? Right? So um, by setting up that dichotomy, um, Strassen uh, is very convincing that the regulative attitude is missing something. Um, we're, we're invested in these um, attitudes. I would say we're invested in the interactions in ways right. that go beyond their sort of success in procuring outcomes at the level of behavior. But um, if, if there's a third alternative to either, I am expressing my commitment, and it's fundamentally about my moral uh, convictions right? that, that I have resentment or that I blame or that I, or that I have guilt. It's fundamentally about my participation in moral life that I exhibit these attitudes. If there's an alternative between or, or in addition to either that or it's all about getting you to behave in the way that I've already decided is morally optimal. If there's a third alternative, that needs to be heard. And reading Strassen's piece really sent me into you know, hours of pacing back and forth thinking about how to articulate what that uh, third, maybe there are more than three, but at least a third alternative might look like. Right, and it, just, it, it struck me as, um, as I was reading your treatments of Strassen that um, uh, as central to the Strassen argument as that sort of participant stance or participant attitude is, there's not a lot or there's almost nothing in the essay that spells out what the participating is participating in <laughs> um, it's just sort of a very very thin you know conception of what the participants are doing together um, uh, and I take it that 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 might be one way uh, of characterizing sort of your own sort of expansion maybe or building upon or uh, a reworking of the Strassonian thought that the the participant attitude is a attitude of participating in something with others rather than just trading uh, expressions of, of you know, indignation. Um, so um, now the book uh, also makes a, 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 a nifty uh, a philosophical move, uh, at least as I, I regard it, in that there's um, – you know, the, the book has sort of two uh, uh, parts, we might say, uh, with an interlude that separates them. And uh, the interlude is very uh, intriguing to me. Um, what happens in the interlude in the, roughly in the middle of the book is you say, OK, I've been sort of talking about this idea of moral concern and critical responsiveness and moral criticism in a modular, as you call it, or as you were just saying, an ecumenical way where I just want to, you say, I'm just calling attention to this dimension of the phenomena that seems under-theorized, and I've been trying to talk about it in, in a way that packages it in a way that can be sort of brought into whatever moral theory the reader might have started reading the book uh, with. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you say, but now I want to make a more bold move 
and try to, as you say, sort of promote a transformative uh, 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 understanding of these these new phenomena. Um, so the second part of the book then is an attempt to show that the conceptual work that you've done, although it can be understood at in the first pass as a, a sort of uh, a modular thing, something new to be understood from within the uh, existing terrain of moral theory. Now the thought is, well, once we start seeing this phenomena as something that needs to be theorized, we will also have to start seeing it as something that needs to take a more central role in our theorizing. Is that right? Right, right. So uh, I take it that... I haven't tried this out on on uh, lots of uh, diehard committed moral theorists, those who have already chosen a camp, um, and most of them in practice are not quite so dogmatic as that makes it sound. But it, I take it that if we could conjure up somebody who's completely committed to the basics of, say, a Kantian account, um, it wouldn't be that hard to convince them or, or, or to draw out some agreement that um, even a Kantian agent doesn't actually think uh, that it doesn't matter what others do. I mean, a few Kantians today uh, take that sort of noumenal metaphysics of Kantian personhood uh, seriously, as far as I can tell, uh, that most of them would, would think that part of being... Um, somebody who cares about integrity and principles is being someone who uh, cares about their um, how they are respected uh, in the social milieu that they that they run in and so they would say well I have to I have to comport myself in accord with the categorical imperative and I also in some ways um, am going to be a good ambassador for the categorical imperative I'm going to you know bring it to others attention I'm going to engage in some kind of outreach or uh, evangelism or um, correction of others when they seem to be uh, corrupt in their uh, in their behavior that kind of thing right Um, Mm -hmm. and that would be thinking that you can just leave moral theory as it is and then add, uh, do something in your social encounters with others that's true to that moral theory. And, of course, you can add that for a uh, utilitarian view very easily. I know what it means to promote good outcomes, and, uh, and I'm going to draw others' attention to that, too. Um, I'm not just going to uh, sort of bypass their attention and get them to do things with good outcomes. I'm going to bring them on board as uh, as part of my recognition of their being moral agents. Okay, so that way of thinking about the role of criticism suggests that moral theory gives you the substance of norms for contact, uh, conduct. And then in implementing those norms, part of it is in your own behavior and part of it is in um, your sort of social talking up of and, and persuasive um, ability to, to bring the cause to the attention of others. Right. So the modular account uh, thinks about criticism as that kind of add-on outreach element of moral agency. But what I find the more I look at the process by which criticism can unfold is that you could take those the very ideals of conduct as they get... Um, as they get talked about by moral theorists, but also by um, ordinary people more or less theoretically inclined, and think about all those ideals of conduct as themselves the sort of accretion over time, the products of critical processes and encounters, that uh, those ideals didn't just 
emerge from uh, disembodied reason uh, or they're not inevitable with uh, historical progress that moral ideals are, are, are made. And then, and then the question, well, what is it to be a moral agent? Could you really be a moral agent who doesn't participate in the reshaping, in the ongoing fashioning of what morality means? It strikes me that if anybody's ever participated in making morality what it is, not just carrying it out, right, that that, that has to be integral to uh, a really rich discussion of what moral agency is. And then uh, we can think about all of our moral ideals of of conduct as being a sort of a uh, an ongoing tentative um, body of, of ideas that owe themselves to that critical process and that must be constantly revisited in light of critical questions and um, new social encounters. Right. And so uh, that's very helpful. And and it does raise um, uh, occasion to, to ask about one of the other sort of main, we, maybe the word foil is too strong. So Strassen keeps coming up as somebody that is mm. uh, worked with and worked against in some ways and, and, and updated in others. But also virtue ethics um, uh, is one of the other sort of uh, uh, um, uh, companions uh, 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 in this theor- theoretical project. Um, and so what you were just saying then about the the making of the you know, the sort of making of morality or participating in fashioning um morality um sounds like at least certain versions of of the the virtue ethic uh, uh virtue ethics approach um and yet again just like with the strassonian uh uh materials uh you're interested in saying well this is a step in the right direction or something that is uh uh, uh grasping at what uh what the moral concern view is 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 trying to promote um so how do you understand the, the, then just to ask the question, how do you understand then the relation of uh, 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 your view to some contemporary, at least, uh, virtue ethical accounts? Mm. For, yeah, as your last comment makes clear, virtue ethics is a much more um, um, diverse body of, of thought than, say, Strassen's Freedom and Resentment, right? A single article. And so um, I... Anybody who participates in virtue ethics simultaneously um, defines it or, or redefines it or offers some some nugget uh, as a suggestion of what what makes virtue ethics what it is what What I find most helpful in virtue ethics is uh, th- those strands of virtue ethics that focus on the attentive embodied how of interaction in saying that interesting questions are not, is it justified to X or not? But when you're in a certain kind of situation, um, what distinguishes a, a really excellent response from one that's uh, kind of clumsy or uh, excessively dogmatic or, uh, or in some other way um, insensitive to the demands of the situation. Virtue ethics is wonderful in, in foregrounding how rather than whether or not as, as a central question. And uh, that, that's been true throughout virtue ethics. Uh, there are certainly lots of virtue ethicists who also think that at the same time as foregrounding how they have to foreground the idea of individual character and the idea of a, uh, a certain set of traits that an individual has that either exemplify virtues, or they exemplify certain virtues and certain vices. 
um, or maybe either just virtue as, as a sum uh, or lack of virtue. And I don't see any reason when we're talking about activity to assume that excellence in that activity has to come in the form of an individual trait that underlies always doing it well. Of course, there are habits in our in our moral interactions, uh, and virtue ethicists have been really attentive to the process of habit development. But habits can develop in interactions. They can develop in social groups. They can develop in cultures. Right? There are all sorts of ways that patterns take shape and then dissipate, and they don't all take place at the level of the shaping of an individual uh, character or personality. So uh, my interest in virtue ethics uh, is compatible with many of the moves, for example, in Christine Swanton's uh, pluralistic virtue ethics, um, in particular because her, her pluralism really makes room for having a diverse range of concerns. Um, and uh, I'd like to add or really encourage people attracted to that line of thought to uh, recognize how much criticism challenges them to um, to displace or question the idealization of tradition and learning from exemplars um, because criticism often involves uh, confronting the old with a new kind of challenge and virtue ethics has been especially um, uh, quiet on the front of uh, moral change. Um, and <laughs> you know, many threads of virtue ethics are, are, are highly, uh, highly conservative in their tone, but they don't have right. to be. And they wouldn't right. have to be if they could just think about critical practice as itself something that you can uh, learn to do more or less well and that people in interactions can, can find themselves being um, uh, able to, to learn from. Right, and I take it that um, one of the other um, uh, places where your account is going to diverge, at least from um, some main mainstream virtue ethics views, including contemporary uh, uh, virtue ethics views, is um, just on this point we, we, we're with the exemplars, where you know a lot of virtu a lot of mainstream virtue ethics views do at at some point appeal to that old Aristotelian thought about phronesis. There is a perceptual kind of faculty that is individual that some people have and other people don't, and maybe it can be developed in some ways and not others. Uh, and that somehow virtue or the bringing together of the virtues is a matter of a, a kind of individual um, sort of a psychological ability to see things in a certain way. Um, and I take it that your account wants to, if it's going to displace anything, that's one of the things that has to be gotten rid of in virtue ethics. Is that right? Yeah, if we think about uh, something like John McDowell's Virtue and Reason, it, right. it, its account of phronesis encourage us to th encourages us to think that the phronemos has a kind of an inarticulate expertise. And in a certain kind of encounter, there's nothing more he, always figured as he, you know, can say yeah. <laughs> um, to convince somebody who doesn't who doesn't inhabit um, wisdom in the way that the phronemos does. And uh, I think that here McDowell has fallen into the trap of contrasting having a thing to say as in having a persuasive reasoned account, right? Um, he's contrasted that against silence and sort of say, well, there's, there's nothing more to say. Um, uh, 
And in fact, there are plenty of communicative things that Afronimos does in encounters with people who are not uh, who are not wise. And some of those things include uh, being quite circumspect about the extent of their own wisdom, right? Not knowing in advance that one is. Uh, has the grounds to silence using McDowell's idea, right? That, that one's confidence about what to silence is, is always well justified. So I, I think the Phronimos uh, in Confucius is actually much more interesting. Um, right. Phronimos is, of course, not a Confucian concept, but <laughs> the, the Confucian sage and Confucius himself uh, often shows a kind of attentiveness when he's. Uh, in dialogue with someone who's different or comes from a different place or a different tradition or when he's in the midst of a ceremony with unfamiliar people, uh, there's a kind of uh, holding back to be receptive. And uh, uh, maybe this is uh, somewhat similar to Socrates, at least some ironic gestures of being the person who needs to learn. And the thing about really good irony is it's not sarcasm. It's not I'm pretending I need to learn. It's a sort of a holding in suspense whether I have something to learn here in, in this oh, that's encounter. Right. That's right. Um, well, so um, let, let me ask one, one sort of final question about the book, and then I'll thank you for your time and, and ask uh, one broader question. Um, so the concluding remarks, which the book ends with, um, I'm sorry, concluding reflections, uh, appropriately uh, called, um, spells out in some, uh, I think, very interesting ways or gives a suggestion, maybe is a gesture towards um, some of what you see as the social and political implications of these sort of reorienting interventions that uh, you've been enacting uh, in this book. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the, the ways in which you think that some of the habits that you're trying to uh, reorient are responsible for some things that you think uh, are problematic in our current uh, social and political Political, uh, environment and some of the ways in which you think that the kind of account you're developing might help to ameliorate uh, some of those uh, difficulties. We could spend another hour here. I know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll just say t two, two, two little things here. That would be great. Yeah, yeah. Um, one is that the preoccupation with uh, justified judgments in their expression lines up with uh, various kinds of what I think of as abject moral failures in practice, um, failures of, of solving real problems. Um, so one example of, uh, uh, of how a focus on uh, justification allows us to bypass the questions of how and communication is when we think about practices of punishment. Uh, and of course, the United States right now is uh, egregious in its in its um, um, practices of imprisonment. We have a very large population behind bars, and our preoccupation with the the grounds and whether or not these people really did something that deserves to be punished has eclipsed our thinking about what it means uh, for us to respond effectively and to come to terms with what the problems are um, that uh, are bound up with crime. And so we individualize the, um, the moral problem into the personality of a prisoner and say, well, uh, we're, uh, we're expressing basically our, our disapproval. And 
it's, there's no doubt that every hour of, of the day, uh, people who are subjected to imprisonment are well aware uh, uh, of the disapproval of society, right? It's sort of written on their walls as well as on their bodies and their clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, um, what it would mean for them to take up that challenge, right, uh, to, to move forward responsibly is... Um, is actually blocked by the very process of imprisonment. Right? We have not figured out how to communicate concern uh, about, say, crimes in such a way that the people who, um, to whom we address that concern are, um, are positioned then to do something um, to intervene based on their own, um, their own particular perspectives and insights. We we have a profound distrust in that communicative process. Um, That's not to say it's easy, right? But I think that uh, a focus on communication and what it means to be in dialogue with wrongdoers uh, rather than to express and make clear and demonstrate um, the unacceptability of what they've done, um, I think that is a crucial piece of um, finding our way out of that problem. Right. Um, and then the other thing that, uh, and this actually might turn towards my future work, if that's uh, a good place to go, is in our thinking about our moral relationships and interactions with the, the world beyond human society. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm particularly thinking about our ecological predicament, uh, clearly uh, climate change, what I think of as global volatility, warming sounds so nice, but uh, <laughs> our, our effect on, on the worldwide uh, climate systems, but also our, our uh, tremendous um, uh, impact on other species. Uh, so if we think that morality is fundamentally the possession of uh, justified claim-making, deliberate, language-using, uh, accountable agents, right? uh, we tend to see those questions as kind of peripheral, as in the penumbra of real morality, which is about human-human relations. And uh, the more I think about moral responsiveness as responsiveness to embodied gestural communication and to sort of um, currents or patterns of um, signals and communications and um, interpretable signs of what's going on in the world. The more I think about morality as a responsiveness in this broader way, uh, the more I want to undermine that, uh, that intuition that morality is a fundamentally human practice and to think about um, the uptake of concern as something that, and the communication of concern as something that's not uniquely human. And even if there are aspects of it that, that uh, it, no doubt, uh, forms and, and complexities to it that are, are especially distinctive of human beings, that we are part of uh, a physically and meaningfully connected interrelationship with uh, lots of beings who are not human and our moral responsiveness to them is something that we've barely begun to have a clue about. So um, what that might look like, how we can turn ourselves and one another in that direction is uh, the subject of uh, what I've been thinking about most recently. 
Yeah, and it, it, that sounds very exciting. And um, perhaps when when that work comes to fruition, uh, I'll, I'll I'll try to get you back on on the podcast. Um, but it does seem that the um, the the way in which your view sort of tries to break the dichotomy between the sort of regulative uh, uh, morality, where you're just trying to pull the right levers, uh, and the expressive, uh, um, uh, does seem to open up all kinds of spaces for um, non-human uh, participants in moral life. Uh, for that reason, mm-hmm. um, well, great, uh, Elise, you've been. Uh, uh, really generous with your time, and it's 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 been it's been great to talk uh, to you about your book, communicating moral concern and ethics of critical responsiveness. Um, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Bob. Well, take care now. You too. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Elise Springer of Wesleyan University. We were talking about her new book, Communicating Moral Concern and Ethics of Critical Responsiveness recently published by MIT Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.